Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Ida Rushaum, and I'm going to get her to help me with the pronunciation afterwards, but I'll continue with the introduction. Ida is a biologist specialized in biomedical research, an environmentalist, a writer, and a science communicator. She has worked in environmental chemistry, diabetes research, pharmaceutical biobanks, and lab robotics. She's also a mother who takes the future of her children very seriously. She's become well-known and respected for her blog, thoughtscapism.com, which um, we will include in the show notes and just a massive shout out to that endeavor. Um, but, you know, I always do background research on my guests and Ida, this is maybe, I think, their second podcast appearance. Uh, no, I think I've been on maybe three or four over okay. the years. I've got to track them down because I could only find one. And uh, anyway, your voice just needs to get out further. So uh, here at Decouple, um, the Royal We are really glad to uh, be a part of, of, of exposing your ideas and your wonderful way of science communicating out to the broader world. I'm so um, happy to be invited. Thanks a lot. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I typically get my guests to give uh, a little bit of a more personal introduction of themselves. And uh, I'm going to throw a little theme at you a little bit. Um, so to sort of explain yourself, but also this concept of thoughtscapism, or maybe even the verb to thoughtscape. <laughs> right, so who, right. who are you? How did you come to that? You know, just give us a bit of a personal take on, on, yeah. on yourself. Uh, I actually was thinking about starting a blog for probably a year or two, but I couldn't come up with a name. Because I needed to start with a name. I, I'm also a writer. I've always wanted to write books. Uh, I wanted to be a scientist and I wanted to be a writer for yeah. as long as I remember. So it was very important to find a good word, but I couldn't yeah. find any. Yeah. So basically, finally, I, was, I, was, I had to condense it to, to what is this blog about for me? Mm -hmm. And it was like generally all kinds of thinking when you really start getting into it, when you're like, how does it work? Why does it work like that? How wow how could it be like that so it's basically when you have an an infectious kind of curiosity on something you really want to dive into something so yeah. then i figured it's sort of like it's you escape into your thoughts you you make this landscape and you try to mm. fit you try to fit your understanding in the blocks because uh everything when everything fits together and you see how it works together this is this wonderful feeling that you get from from yeah understanding yeah. the world better finding more knowledge that that explains things to you better. So I figured thoughtscaping is the, the, the sort of the most narrow that I can come down to because mm -hmm. I want to be able to write about, write about so many topics. I'm, I'm interested obviously in biology since I'm a biologist and uh, biology and chemistry and also physics just because the universe is pretty awesome and it, it hangs, you know, it, it's connects to, to living things we don't exist without mm -hmm. all the other sciences. And so, so basically I just figured that, okay, this is it. Finally, I'll, I'll settle on this name and then I can actually get down to writing. So anything, anything that I, I think is really fascinating can fit mm -hmm. in there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you talking about sort of building this, this kind of architecture. It reminds me a little bit of that concept of like the memory palace when people had to memorize vast tracts of literature, they would imagine a cathedral and then they, in each sort of 
little alcove they they'd sort of slot in something they learned or that they were going to memorize but yeah creating that that architecture is interesting and yeah your blog is really diverse I mean, with this podcast, um, it's called Decouple. I think the audience kind of knows that concept and what it's about. I've tended to sort of keep getting drawn back to nuclear because it, it sort of feels like this ultimate decoupling tool and, you know, energy being the master resource that can drive so many other processes that can hopefully allow human beings to sort of live sensibly with nature, allow, you know, humans and, and nature to flourish. So um, very interesting and such a good resource. And, and I want to, I want to like, I'm like, man, I need to have Ida back for more episodes because I want to branch out and cover a lot of the topics that you've covered. So once again, absolutely amazing having you on. Um, now you've talked a little bit, you've talked a little bit about the blog, um, and, and its origins, but can you talk a little bit more about, I guess your motivations? I think you've talked in the past about, you know, being a new mother, that sort of instinct of wanting to protect your kids. You know, I think there's yeah. a lot of cultural anxiety about like purity and wanting to protect your children from contamination. And I think, did it all begin with your thoughts around exploring like the organic food movement? Or am I off on that? Uh, actually, it started with vaccines. Ah, okay. It was, uh, uh, I was, I was always very interested in, in um, environmental topics and food and agriculture is a big part of that. But it was first when I realized when I didn't have, I, I was in Switzerland and, uh, I got, I gave birth to my first daughter, and then I didn't have the support network uh, from mm. from my country. So, so I'm Finnish, but I've studied in Sweden, and I had left both those behind. And we were for work. We had gone to Switzerland, and then when I I went online for for support from expat moms that spoke English, but mm. were in Switzerland, and the 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 culture shock was really great because in Finland and Sweden you have actually quite high. Um, acceptance of vaccines for instance and in Finland alternative medicine is very uh, very on the fringes you don't have homeopathy or we don't even really know what it is mm -hmm. and when I realized how much people were pushing it this I, I love the way you said uh, the purity or contamination of babies <laughs> mm -hmm. this was basically the the really the pervasive thinking that you have to protect your children from this world that is full of chemical exposures of different mm -hmm. kinds and uh, a very much like you can trust other mothers but you can't trust whichever instance that you're talking about even um, obviously all big companies become uh, these these agents of of uh, yeah malevolent agents somehow mm -hmm. and then uh, um, if it's a personal source of information then that's something that you can trust this mm -hmm. was the feeling in those groups where I was. And I was completely shocked when they said that you shouldn't vaccinate your children. Mm -hmm. And having having a little, uh, you know, my it was during the first year of my daughter's life. And I was really emotional and protective. And just the feeling of knowing that somebody would willingly, uh, you know, spread this information and do it to their own children to leave them unprotected got me really boiling and this was mm -hmm. this was at the point when it wasn't science communication at all so then I had just had to sort of process my own reactions to this what that what can I do if I if I want to make a change that that helps them mm -hmm. being mad at them <laughs> doesn't really help I mean no. I couldn't help it it was a very emotional time for myself as well but then I started sort of for my mental peace I started 
compiling all the research on those different topics. Uh, and then I was thinking that, hey, they, they, they don't have this information. It was also partly this naive thinking in the beginning. They just need the information, which is not necessarily the case. But at least the information should be available and, mm -hmm. and in a form that you can, if you want to have it, you can have access to it. Because it's often, you know, far away, very technical uh, language, lots of strange terms and lots of weird scientific uncertainty in all the the, uh, the, the way you put something. If you're, if you're thinking about how to protect my baby and you go and say possible side effects are and adverse reactions have been, it doesn't yeah. sound reassuring. So I was just thinking, okay, there's a human step there in between that's missing and I, I want to do it. I have this knowledge, I want to use it. Mm -hmm. so that's why I uh, started first actually talking about vaccines. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's interesting you talking about the the language of science and and the humility of science. Um, there's a great a great quote by Winston Churchill: um, "What man desires is not knowledge, but certainty." And science can never offer that in terms of you know this concept of the null hypothesis, and you know you can only reject or or fail to reject it, and you yeah. can never make these st these statements. So in regards to vaccines. Um, you can say there is no evidence of any association, um, but you can't say vaccines don't cause autism, um, you know, as a pure scientist. And yeah. I wonder, as a science communicator, how do you feel about that? Is it appropriate to, I'm not saying like dumb the language down, but, you know, in a world where there is so little trust of expertise, you know, I think we've explored in, in past episodes kind of why that is, but yeah, I guess. Yeah, what do you what, what do you feel about that in terms of? I think that's a great question. Communicating it. Uh, that's. I think it, I've written uh, in the past about about uh, the the pitfalls of science speak, mm -hmm. and I think there's there's. It was great that you chose. You said not without dumbing it down because people think that okay, either you use a highly technical language or then you dumb it down and somehow you you degrade what you're saying and you don't actually uh, give the same valuable communication. And I think that's not true. There's a lot larger landscape there. So what I like to think of it is that, sure, scientists don't like to speak in absolutes or in certainties. It's, it's not in the nature of science. It's interesting that people see science as this, this sort of uh, uh, stiff, authoritative figure, but actually science, as you said, it's the process itself is one of extreme humility, realizing that we can't necessarily know and we can't always trust our own views either. We have mm -hmm. to protect ourselves from our own biases. And this is very difficult for the layperson or for in, in everyday thinking to, to always to think that, hey, I can't trust what I think happened. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a difficult step. But uh, since science doesn't really speak in certainties this way, but there's also a different principle, which I think is very helpful to think about it from, from a different perspective, which is that science works on the principle of getting it less wrong over time, getting it to the right ballpark. You, you refine uh, mm -hmm. your knowledge. And so if you start then and you turn your attention to uh, science communication, the public uh, space. How are these things talked about? And if you see that there are some some arguments and some topics where where you are completely off course, where you're, where you're really like you're at the one percent when when actually the knowledge we have is around ninety nine. So it's it's really far ends of the spectrum that we are not sure about this bit. But since we talk about it with this inherent uncertainty, people jump to the conclusion that the 
uncertainty we don't is, really know. is near yeah. complete. <laughs> so it, no, we have to get it less wrong. So we mm -hmm. have to use certain enough language to tell people that we are really convinced that we are in this area. The uncertainties are in this scale, yeah. on this scale. It's, it's very interesting because I think um, it's a red flag when you hear a statement of certainty. You know, it should be to a skeptical mind because, again, science doesn't work that way. And science, it's really messy. I think we're really seeing that with COVID, right, where, you know, there's a, a study that comes out. It's not peer reviewed. It's sort of a preprint that there's this miracle new cure for COVID. And then, you know, when it's when there's attempts made to replicate it, oh, you know, what, that didn't end up working out. And meantime, everyone's rushing out to buy whatever it is, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, you name it, right? Um, and I think science has really been kind of on display because of COVID and it's been normally it's sort of yeah. conducted a little more humbly and within academia and there's these consensus conferences and scientists meet and then they say, okay, this is what the evidence seems to show. Let's draw together all these studies and we'll, we'll give this kind of humble take on things, but it's, it's really been exposed to kind of the messy inner workings and particularly when the process isn't allowed to play itself out. I think the other element is that there's, you know, science is becoming a, a kind of pseudo religion and, and it's becoming, you know, I guess, really integrated into culture wars. It's becoming hyper-partisan. You know, you can always find a, like a scientist who will back up a claim, for instance. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I kind of think of you as um, celebrity is totally not the right word, uh, but <laughs> You know, you are a, a thought leader and a communicator, I guess, within the sort of eco-modernist movement um, and someone that people come to as a trusted source, because ideally, you know, if you want to investigate any topic, you should comb through the primary literature yourself. You should have the training to be able to say, OK, this is a Which good is quality study. Impossible. It's impossible. There's too so, many fields. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, you doing that work is of huge value. And and I think that's why you, you really looked up to sort of within this scene that's small as it is but you know I, and i think it's interesting to contrast that role that you play um and the kind of vigor that you bring to to the way that you study these topics to the kind of celebrity scientists of say the anti-vax movement um the anti-nuclear movement uh, the anti-genetic engineering movement and again like looking at the ways in which they communicate and the statements they make which are just laced with these ideas of certainty that vaccines cause autism or that um, you know, claims about radiation or that, you know, genetically modified foods or Roundup cause everything, right? Uh, autism, celiac, the whole, the yeah, whole thing. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I think that it's interesting. I've used this, uh, I've, I've tried to turn it around sometimes, especially in radi radiation, because there's this inherent uh, uh, insecurity, like, might there be effects? How low dose do we need to have the effects? And this uncertainty is, is uh, really scary to people and it doesn't convey, it, it doesn't sit intuitively in our understanding. It, it gets inflated. Mm -hmm. If there's any uncertainty, there must be real danger. Mm -hmm. But then I try to turn it around and say that, okay, so we have a lot of research on what, how much radiation do you need to actually detect an increase in cancer rates. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to say that for one person unless we go to really, really high doses. But let's say that I'm in a situation and I want to know how dangerous is this radiation here. And then I want to go to the point that how much would I have to get mm -hmm. to have like a guarantee of having a little yeah. increase in yeah. cancer risk. And then that way you realize that, that 
having these huge doses on you, like like way beyond recommendations, 200 millisieverts within a space of weeks or months or something like this. This is uh, this is way beyond all limits, ten, tenfold beyond European yearly limit for nuclear mm-hmm. workers. And at that point, you realize like, well, am I guaranteed now to have that those actual horrible horrible effects on me? <laughs> I've had mm-hmm. this huge exposure. What does science says say about my chances of getting cancer and it's like mm. yeah it's it's a bit like if you drink a glass of wine every day mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this is about the kind of risk you you're starting to get to with this dose mm-hmm. i'm like all right so so there are lots of people drinking a glass of wine every day who don't feel particularly threatened yeah. and don't think you know but this idea that that this horrible huge dose is certainly dangerous and then you contrast it with something you realize that that the uncertainties there too um, can actually help us give people a, an image of like, wow, it's not even guaranteed that I could get cancer, even from way, way, way higher exposures. Yeah, no, and I mean it's very interesting looking at the Chernobyl cohorts and the people who actually got you know acute radiation syndrome or sickness and you know massive doses, life-threatening doses, and that within that cohort, I mean, I think 28 people died over of about 130 people that got ARS. And, um, you know, the remainder have been followed along and there hasn't been a kind of excess really of cancer related deaths. There's been, you know, cirrhosis, car accidents, things like that. Um, so that's, that's, you know, and, and I think we're going to talk a bit later about your trips to uh, Switzerland's uh, nuclear waste uh, temporary storage site and to Chernobyl. And I think we'll get into sort of some of the psychology around that. Um, you know, that even people that are well-educated, I think because of some of the, um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, uh, the drama about it, right, in terms of the way in which like if you enter into one of these sites, you know, all the extra clothing you put on, you know, the fact that, you know, the doses need to be almost like lower than background radiation doses. Yeah, uh, it's, what, it's what, a theater sort of <laughs> theater. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. And and that I think even on people that are that are well educated and comfortable with the topic, I think can make you second guess yourself in terms of like, well, shit, if I'm going through this whole ritual, you know, and I think about, well, what's, you know, if you were to go visit a coal plant, like you put on a hard hat, right? And there's particulate <laughs> right. all over the place. Like it's, it's wild, but maybe we'll get to that a bit later. Um, I think another real difficulty with, with the science communication is, you know, things like becoming familiar with the units of measurement. I mean, radiation, God, there's nine, 10 of them. They're all it's a, little a complete bit difficult. disaster. <laughs> and, the, and then also this concept of numeracy, right? And I've been looking into that recently and, and, you know, our ability as human beings to understand large numbers is really limited. And it's because, you know, we evolved and we've spent the vast majority of our evolutionary lifespan as a species in hunter gatherer tribes, you know, so we're comfortable with numbers kind of up to about a hundred in terms of visualizing things. Um, And there's this great example of, you know, a thousand dollar bills stacked up is about four inches. Uh, A million is a football field and a billion is the height of our atmosphere on earth. Right. And it's just, it's so hard to get our, our mind around that. Um, and again, some of these sort of radiation measures like a Becquerel, for instance, like, you know, the number of, of, uh, of decays of an atomic nucleus within a sample in front of you, that can sound terrifying, right? It There's, can. And- especially to people that don't understand that the whole world is radioactive. And yeah. I think you, you walk around with a Geiger counter a lot. <laughs> so what are, what, are some of your, what are some of your insights from that? You know, units, uh, numeracy, and, and walk, life lessons of walking around with a Geiger counter. 
I uh, tip number one: turn off the beeping, because right. <laughs> that would scare people. Like the theater, when you really put on, on the safety gear, then yeah. you feel that it must be dangerous. If it starts beeping, <laughs> it must be dangerous. But the thing is that you can set the limit to anything. Right. No matter what you set the limit to, if it starts beeping, you get alarmed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, most of the time, it's actually really boring. Yeah. You go like where where it's there's radiation everywhere sure mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but not a whole lot of it and you go looking for like where can i find some more yeah. and uh, uh there's some some really interesting stuff that that happened but not very often i mean i no longer sleep with it on on my bedside table because <laughs> i was woken up by cosmic uh cosmic rays <laughs> wow wow cosmic background radiation suddenly spiked my meter that that's like was, the that, only... was that because of like an aurora borealis type effect or something no or... that was in switzerland so but right. it's possible but basically you just have these random high energy particles coming every now and then and if you have the if, if you're the in luck and one met... yeah exactly then <laughs> wow so it was interesting i hadn't turned off the beeping yet so it was in the middle of the night suddenly like have what? you <laughs> do you share a bed with another person yeah, yeah, if you, yeah. I've, I've heard if you like maybe if you put it between yourselves that might uh, <laughs> ah, right cause, right because of all the radiation we're giving off yeah and potassium and so and things like that. Yeah. yeah no it's it's funny i work in a hospital and in the emergency department and so we have a lot of patients on on telemetry on monitoring you know and so we're trying to detect if they're going into an arrhythmia or if their oxygen levels are going down so there's this ecosystem of sounds all around you Sometimes right. I compare it to like being in a, a very biodiverse marsh and you hear sort of like the chirping of birds and you hear tree frogs <laughs> humming away and it starts to just fade into the background Yeah. And as you realize that like, and it's, it's, and there's certain alarms that go, okay, okay, we've got to, <laughs> there's a code blue, we've got to go rush right, and, right. and save someone's life. But yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting in that like inability to detect, I mean, I guess the way they used to sort of detect radiation and, and you know, radiologists and, and x-ray things was this erythema test, like you put your arm in front of the beam and your skin would turn a bit red, like that's the threshold at which we start to detect radiation. But it's almost like if you could put like an implant into someone and they could constantly have the sense of what's around them, it would really kind of demystify things. And I think that's, has that been part of your process of becoming comfortable with radiation is just hey it's it's my granite countertop this that you know and yeah and for sure i mean places it's it's been a part of it and actually i was really um inspired by uh i went to uh oecd uh, has this uh, nuclear energy agency and they had a workshop on risk communication uh, in 2019 and there i met a professor from california Oh, it was one and a half years ago. He was he was a really great guy, and I can I can check the name for you afterwards. But he has a project where he's um, uh, he has a software that he's developed that can map uh, radiation levels to a map, so that you can sort of you can walk around you, and you can you can you can mm. you can have this map of radiation levels all around you. And uh, he said that there were even people who were iffy, like, okay, but what if if people knew this, and what if there's like right. some some areas with housings which have a bit higher uh, readings, and we don't want people to have uh, access to this kind of information right. to scare them. It's going to hurt but tourism. Was, yeah, exactly, yeah. or 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 sales, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sales of houses. But I was really. It, inspired by it because I thought that if people would have this uh, ability to check and know that hey it's it's all around us all the time mm. I would think that it would help them also get over it maybe they would first go like 
oh my god there's this one right. spot around in the neighborhood where you have higher radiation and then after yeah. a while they're like yeah sure there's spots like that every, every yeah it just it just recedes into the background i mean yeah. in the same way that you know we can smell pollution on the street from dirty cars i mean when you travel overseas particularly to countries where there's not regulations on like automobile emissions like it's you notice, I mean, it's interesting, it does fade into the background, right? Like our noses have a real ability to go, oh, that's an awful smell. And then just, you know, uh, just phase it out, ignore it. And yeah. I think I think that probably would happen with radiation. Um, you know, again, on this kind of science communication topic, and I guess kind of comparing and contrasting, you know, someone like you, who's very rigorous, um, and I think very, very honest in terms of, you know, challenging cognitive biases. And if you find some literature that disagrees with you know a, a previous point that you had a willingness to change to change your mind um you know i'm thinking about some of the sort of thought leaders of of the green movement um fukushima's in the news because we're is the anniversary i think it's tomorrow's the anniversary we're recording march 10th here um so one of the sort of um celebrity scientists of the anti-nuclear movement is a guy named christopher busby and after fukushima this guy started a charity called the children of fukushima foundation um, and sold for-profit supplements, I think calcium, magnesium, um, at prices that were three or four times what you get in the pharmacy, because you can buy these things in the pharmacy. So literally profiteered off of this. And he had a, he was spreading a conspiracy theory that Japanese authorities were spreading nuclear, nuclear uh, contamination all throughout the entire country so that we wouldn't be able to detect an increase in cancer in the Fukushima prefecture. And, you know, when you think about the impacts that this has, and, and we were talking earlier about, you know, these concepts of sort of purity, contamination, fears that mothers have, like very natural protective things that we have for each other and, and our children in particular. I mean, the fact that someone like this, when this is exposed, and George Mambio exposed this, wrote a great article about it, I think in The Guardian, um, you know, they still don't lose their prestige, you know, even like, my father was quite anti nuclear. And when I sort of started exploring this topic two or three years ago, he was like, what about Chris Bus? Because he does a lot of low dose re radiation stuff. And it took a while to sort of learn more about the guy. But I mean, and the list goes on. I mean, Andrew Wakefield, and, and the, you know, the fact that he was involved in a, a legal, a legal battle was paid to sort of do this case series of 12 children that he sort of selected, and, you know, just horribly dishonest science. And, and like profiteering from it as well, right? And I think what's interesting is, you know, some of the angles that you've taken um, around nuclear power, around um, glyphosate, for instance, there's this immediate, well, you must be paid by the industry, right? I mean, look at that expensive poster you have on the wall, right? I mean, this is, <laughs> you know, so it's just, it's just interesting, like the, the, to compare and contrast, like these, these figures. And, and I, I kind of think of things as there is a bit of a battle of ideas, right? Like, we are trying to make decisions. We're trying to sift through the evidence and, you know, create the brightest future possible. And, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's very interesting kind of looking at, at these two phenomenons um, and these, these two ways of, of, of seeing the world. And, you know, I don't want to paint sort of like the eco-modernist movement as perfect. I have, I have qualms and critiques, but yeah, I think, I think that's a, an interesting phenomenon, that red flag of certainty. And then, you know, seeing some of the the financial benefits, I think about like Helen Caldicott and the number of honorary doctorates she's had like um, bestowed upon her, and someone like you, where you have a great blog, and I think you have the respect from within the community, but it's it's very different, right? Yeah, I mean, I I, I have no financial gain from this. I'm just in the happy position that I have the 
the time and, and possibility to do this yeah. on my free time. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's really interesting to hear all these people say that you must be paid for this industry and you must be paid by that industry mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. third industry. I'm like, all these industries, <laughs> really? <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, it's, it's just, I think that actually helps to step a step, take a step back um, because a lot of these topics, nuclear, pesticides, GMOs, vaccines, all kinds of topics where we have this automatic flare-up of this is, must be something dangerous and we, we assign more weight to it than, than uh, we would have to if we actually looked at the, the, the evidence, but mm -hmm. the, the feeling is there, so it gives us this flare-up. And if you go to someone who already has this and you say that, you know, you're wrong, <laughs> look mm -hmm. at this, it's not like that you have a natural uh, reaction to take a step back and, and dig deeper. But it's actually a little bit helpful, I think, to step back and take uh, take a look at the psychology of risk, because mm -hmm. it's not something like that, you're wrong here. No, 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 I'm just discussing the interesting fact of how our minds work and how yeah. do we interpret things. And if you have any curiosity for this, I mean, there's lots of people who think that it's just very boring and they won't listen. But if you have any curiosity for this, uh, or if you are can be convinced this is actually important for you, if there's a topic that might hurt you, yeah. and how do we, where do we easily go astray? How do we uh, take a false step? How, what does risk psychology tell us about that? Yeah. That it might actually help. It's it's because nobody's is paying me to get people to think about risk psychology. It's like there's yeah. not an industry that's yeah. I, I don't I don't profit from it. Yeah. So <laughs> let's, to see the yeah, let, let's let's dive into this concept of risk, right? Because I mean I think one of the one of the things that I, I sort of talk about like two areas that I wish were better taught in school. Um, and two concepts that would just dramatically change society and help people be better decision makers, both policymakers and you know, members of a democracy, right, who are asked to make choices. And one is, you know, understanding correlation versus causation. And the, and the other is this concept of relative risk, right? And the way I see things right now is basically societally, we've ruled out nuclear energy as um, a tool for fighting climate change because of our fears about what about the waste and our anxieties about radiation. And, you know, we're, we're amplifying these risks to such a degree that we're completely ignoring the almost certainty of, well, certainly the certainty of some climate impacts, you know, how severe those become is, is a real question, but non-trivial chances, not, you know, that we could head towards, you know, hothouse earth type effect. And we're ruling out probably the only proven scalable decarbonization tool that we, we have uh, because of that, that concern. So one of the concepts in sort of preparing for this interview and, and reading through things was this concept of hazard versus risk. Um, can you can you break that down for our audience? Sure. I mean, uh, hazard is anything that has the potential to to cause harm. Mm -hmm. uh, and very usual uh, uh, example is to use animals because animals are very intuitive. Uh, we we know animals can be dangerous. Yeah. It's sort of a primal example uh, that an animal can be dangerous, a bear or shark or something like this. Mm -hmm. But then risk is how likely am I to be attacked by this bear? How likely is, is this bear or shark going to bite at me? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the exposure to, to wild-free bears around me is very low. So right. although a bear, if it's angry and it's close to me, is a real hazard, yeah. the part about risk is how close is it to me? 
-hmm. how likely am I to meet one? So um, with with animals, we understand that there has to be exposure. We have to have a relevant uh, relevant dose of bear. <laughs> a right. hair doesn't isn't enough, or yeah. a whiff of bear, or a sight of bear somewhere far away in a cage. Yeah. It's not enough. We understand this very palpably, and then we move to these abstract things, which are which is a great richness of human cognition, but also something we don't actually hand, have a very good handle on. So mm -hmm. it's abstract risk that I know there's a contamination of some kind. Mm -hmm. Okay, these contaminations, they are hazards because they can, when given in enough, uh, in large enough dose, they can cause harm. But it's very difficult for us because we, if we can't see and feel the, the what, what kind of dose, <laughs> yeah. is, it, is it palpable for me? I know that water is dangerous in a dose, like when it's above my head and I can't get out. That's, mm -hmm. that's a very dangerous water dose. <laughs> yeah. One, one, if, example, one example that I love, and it, and it harkens back to our discussion about sort of purity, right? And contamination is... Um, you know, this anxiety about aluminum and vaccines, for instance. And so I've just got a fact pulled up here in the first six months of life from all the vaccines a baby will get, they'll get about four milligrams of aluminum. And that sounds kind of, you know, what the hell? I think because we think of aluminum only as being in cans or something, and we don't think about bauxite and the fact that it's a ubiquitous element on the periodic table, right? But, you know, the average human body contains 50 to 150 milligrams of aluminum in it at all times. And a baby that's breastfed will get eight milligrams just in breast milk. And a baby that's formula fed will get 40 milligrams. So when you are able to put things into that context, and I think like if we were able to get through this sort of, I've had it described as, as sort of like a romanticism about nature and about these concepts of purity and see the world as this nuanced place that's full of, you know, hazards, um, but, but understanding that difference and, you know, to risk and, and, you know, situating things within that environment of again, you know, well, what's in the vaccines versus what's in breast milk and how, how relevant is it is. Yeah. And I have this, I have this fantasy that I want to uh, show to people this image that uh, we see the world as very like, I'm, I'm here and I'm separate from, from this block table here or, or the walls or the air. I, I breathe in some, but we have this, this uh, very distinct a feeling that we're like blocks of things, yeah. <laughs> living things, but still. Right. But then when you look at, for, uh, when you dive in and when you go into really small scale, we're really these these completely dynamic uh, clouds or, or aggregates of molecules that are co constantly changing, constantly meeting other molecules. We live in a sea of molecules and they're, mm -hmm. they're interacting with each other all the time. And in order for... For a molecule, for instance, to be this this shark, you have to have a, an army of these molecules that can invade deep in your body and do and meet lots of other molecules. <laughs> in yeah. a way, I want yeah. to give these people this this image of of uh, the richness of life on microscopic scale. Did you, <laughs> like, did you please, see? can you do animations of like this or something? To there, there was a re recent viral image that makes me think of that. And it was it was beyond electron microscopy. There was, I forget, another technique that was employed as well, but it was this beautiful image of a cell and it's just full, you know, and you can yeah, see the I think ribosomes I've seen the same ones. and you yeah. can see the cytoskeleton and it's it's absolutely incredible. And it kind of reminds me of our discussion about, you know, if we could sense, uh, if we had a Geiger counter kind of built into us all around us. I mean, if we could see, because yeah, I think you're totally right. We think I'm a human, this is a human body, I'm 100% human. And we can go down, you know, various magnitudes of, 
uh, you know, into, into microscopic and even elemental worlds. And I'm a collection of atoms. Oh, like I'm mostly actually like empty space between like a nucleus right. and an, an electron shield or whatever. Right. It's, it's, it's absolutely dazzling and it's, it's kind of beautiful. And I think that's the kind of thing that gives us the dopamine hits, the, the kind of nerds that we are. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but let's talk a bit about, um, cause I'm very interested in sort of the cognitive basis for why we think the way we do and, and why we have these, these fears that we have and why we make kind of emotional decisions versus rational decisions. There's um, that prize, Nobel Prize winning economist, Daniel Kahneman, who talks about sort of thinking fast and thinking slow, systems one and systems two thinking. And systems one is that sort of emotional response, which, you know, we can't constantly be doing the math and figuring out and judging every single decision we make in life. Um, and so we need to you know, we, we need to actually rely on this kind of emotional decision making kind of 99% of the time. I mean, also just in terms of we absolutely need shortcuts. Yeah. yeah, they're absolutely vital. But there's this need to figure out and, and in medicine, we call it cognitive forcing, because we make a lot of our, our decisions, you know, and, and our diagnoses around that kind of okay, I've seen pattern recognition, I've seen this a lot of times. Okay, this cues that diagnosis in my head, and this confirms it. Here we go. Um, but you can certainly have other like cognitive errors, like premature anchoring or availability bias. I saw this horrible case of, you know, uh, uh, you know, this rare disorder, and now I'm worried about it and everybody and I see it everywhere. So, so we have this concept called cognitive forcing. And so we, we recognize, okay, we have systems one and systems two thinking, we have this intuitive versus this rational thinking. But the key thing is to uh, like it's called cognitive forcing, forcing. So it's kind of like being able to recognize when you've got to turn on the systems too, is is really vital. Um, I'd like everybody to have this <laughs> this button that every like now and then you have to push it. <laughs> yeah, a little alarm that could go off, like ding, 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 ding. And I mean, I think that's that's how we have to train our thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and then there's this other concept. Uh, have you read uh, Noah Yuval Hariri's book, uh, Homo Deus or Sapiens? No, I haven't. Uh, so he's this Israeli historian who's, you know, wrote a, a big, vast book about the history of humankind and, and then this sort of the future of humankind. And he, he talks about um, like emotions or algorithms <clears throat> in terms of decision making. Right. And, and it's the sort of byproduct or like the exhaust of this rapid cognitive process that's going on in our brain to make a decision. And he gives this example of, you know, a baboon that sees a banana tree with a lion sleeping under it. And, you know, it's going to make that decision about whether to go and get the banana based on a whole variety of factors, right? And, and the processing that's going on in the brain to do that or, you know, too rapid to really, I guess this is an example of that systems one thinking, right? But like, does that line look sound asleep? How ripe are those bananas? You know, how fast can I move? Like, how's my hip feeling today? It's a bit sore, right? And then that's manifested as like, no, no, like fear, like this isn't worth it, or like a desire, you know, hunger, a desire for the food. And, Maybe I'm going off on a little bit of a track here, but I'm just interested in, you know, recognizing, I guess, how humans have got to the place we have where I think we're really at a dangerous point in history where, you know, we make so much of our political decisions, who we vote for off of a feeling, what does their hair look like, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's, there's this uh, two aspects of it. I think that it's, it's great to realize that we all have this process. We all, all have this. It's, it's easy to say that, well, we, we stay, take a step back and we think about rationally about our our uh thinking around risks but that's great if we do it and as often mm. as, as we can do it and have the resources to do it but to realize that everybody has this and 
also to understand that yes, it's it's vital for a functioning because you just have a cognitive overload if you have to make really hardcore long reflections on every topic rationally. It, it doesn't work. So we need these shortcuts and to to have a sort of empathy for sure people have them and it's they're not they're not evil because they have them. Mm -hmm. They can make mistakes because they have them, but you can understand them. You can understand why people hang on to them. Why? Why it sort of gives it gives a great relief to have this certainty that wait, uh, this makes me scared. I should avoid scary things. This is definitely an a scary thing that I can avoid. And now I'm making my world more safe. Mm -hmm. And this can be a tremendous thing for a person to have this agency that I'm, I'm making. I'm making the world more safe now for myself and for my family and so. On. Yeah. So to understand this and have empathy for this. And at the yes. same time, we as humanity are in a in a position where we are sort of we are capable of more than we should possibly be because of our cognitive failings and on, on, on perspective, especially as societies on large scale. And uh, we should be held responsible. We should be said like, hey, hey, you can't do that. We have to take a step back and we have to reflect. We are responsible for what we do. We really mm -hmm. need to do it. So, so it's sort of a balancing act between this being being spiteful to humanity like how can you be so stupid people mm -hmm. societies why do you make these decisions you can't this is this just doesn't work you have to do better and at the same time at individual level have this understanding of what are these mechanisms and and why do people react like this and you know not both being uh making people responsible for their actions and not judging people but trying yeah. to help them how, how do we make it more how do we make this uh cognitive forcing spread how right. do we make it sort of a part of every people's civilization it's it's yeah. a general civil, a step of civilization that you know that all right right i have to think about these risks again and I, th I think one of those like cues for cognitive forcing, you know, is, is you have to identify these kind of red flags. And one of those things would be like when a scientist or figure sort of states something with absolute certainty, that should be a red flag to you and force you to do a bit of co like cognitive forcing. And then, okay, I've got to turn on that systems too and use my rational mind to assess in a perfect world, in a perfect world. I think another thing you said though is so important. Um, and that's the empathy part because um, you know, as, as science communicators, I think we often get just, you, you can get into a place of bitterness and anger and frustration, um, at, you know, the Sisyphean task, pushing the boulder up the mountain of, of trying to communicate issues, especially when there's such societal biases around say nuclear energy or genetic engineering, or for God's sakes, even controversy around something as unambiguously beneficial to humanity as vaccines. Um, but that, that empathy is, I think, really important. And it's, it's helped me, I think, to be more convincing. Um, because, you know, people get their backs up when you're coming at them aggressively, and when it turns into sort of a battle of the wills. And it's, it's, it's um, not good for for you, or it's not good for us either. Yes. to stay on this mode. I realized I don't like myself, I get upset when people make choices, which I think will hurt their families. But then I realized that it's, yeah, it's, it is upsetting. But going on that track, it, it makes me a worse person as well. Instead, trying to like sit down and how can we figure things out together? How can we find out something together? Trying to get this, let's turn away from each other and look at the same direction and try to recognize that we have the same, the similar values. We, we share these goals. We want safe 
futures. We, we mm-hmm. want a rich, natural world. We want this. Let's feel for a moment that we really want this. And then think, try to start from the beginning and think, how do we do this? How do we mm-hmm. know how we do it? <laughs> and so on. So it's, uh, uh, I don't want people getting stuck in this bitter and frustrated mode. Mm-hmm. And for that, I think that's the this best medicine is yeah. trying to do things together, trying to stop going against. We have a, we have this unfortunate tendency. Probably, uh, we've had it a long time in evolution to try to to butt heads. Yeah, <laughs> that it's it's only helpful for so long. It's it's not this, very this, helpful. I think this is a this is a total aside. But I used to train sled dogs. Um, for ah. maybe in Finland, you'd be familiar. <clears throat> and one thing I was taught very early on is when you approach a dog, you never approach it head on. You, you come along right. from the side. So you're both looking in the same direction and you're kind of on the same team. And so I think that empathy thing kind of serves that function of, Hey, I can recognize like as a mother, or as a father, like your fear of like contamination and your kid, you know, that protection, that over, I shouldn't say overprotectiveness, that protectiveness that we feel for our children and coming at that angle to, to begin communicating and then talking about the, you know, well, there's this risk and there's that risk and there's, you know, this is a hazard. That's a risk. So speaking of those risks, you have a great graphic, like your, your, your website has a lot of awesome content written word, but just some great images that I've found useful. And one of them is this picture of like a forest and it's, and it's like, it's admittedly you say not to scale, but it's, it's, you know, these great big trees, um, which are, you know, um, demonstrating like really tiny trivial risks. Um, And then, you know, this, this kind of shrubbery at the bottom, which is, you know, these, these real risks that we ignore. Um, And I think you've kind of talked about like, there's the success of public health and, and good governance. Um, and, and certain regulations have brought about these amazing, like the public health measures that we have. And there's such a kind of um, cognitive pessimism that kind of pervades our culture uh, that we haven't made improvements, that things aren't sort of better than they've kind of ever been in a sense. And I mean, there's a total pairing of that, which is there's a lot of environmental degradation. And that's you know the purpose of this podcast. And I think the movement more broadly to try and synthesize, you know, all these benefits we have, you know, lack of vaccine preventable diseases, you know, very few famines anymore, these kind of things. <clears throat> but there's almost like you get the sense that there's this kind of like societal decay, like when we get to a stage where we've eradicated a lot of these big risks, is it inevitable that we end up focusing on these trivial risks and blowing them out of proportion? And, you know, a lot of anxiety, right? Like you talk about, you know, the, the sort of anxiety around pesticides, for instance, and, and yeah. the communication of the organic food lobby, you know, maybe people are eating less fruit and vegetables, which is ultimately, you know, having a diet rich in fruit and vegetables actually is something that can prevent cancer, whereas the trivial amounts of, of pesticides are a hazard if, if you were to stick your head in a bucket full or, you know, guzzle straight pesticides, but the residues on foods, I think, are, are pretty insignificant, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the, the, this infographic that you talk of, it's, it's, it's really great. It's, it's, together with Alison Bernstein. Uh, she's a neuroscientist from US. And we had actually a graphic designer help us. So, mm-hmm. so you can see her touch there. Um, and uh, it's, it has these, these things which we, which we really don't think about really because they are, they're so mundane. They don't set up the alarms. Like yeah. eating your fruits and veggies. It's actually yeah. a really big, uh, big deal. factor for <laughs> health. <laughs> but nobody feels it's dangerous to skip their veggies and fruits. 
they just yeah. feel oh I'm, I'm not i know i'm not doing as i supposed to but they're not scared yeah <laughs> they're like yeah. oh my god today no <laughs> 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 cucumber since yeah. looking at your site i've actually started eating even more I, I have a pretty good diet but i've started eating even more vegetables <laughs> that's great that's great yeah because because this uh uh it's in a way it's also a, a really a sign of privilege that yeah. things are so good for us in rich countries mm -hmm. that we can't we have the time uh to to you know um, like they had in ancient greece they had slaves slave labor we have we have probably some imported slave-ish labor from uh, the poorer parts of the world but anyway we have a better situation in society and we have time to do philosophy and all kinds of things mm -hmm. and we can think about these these abstract things and then we can get scared about them so then we have this this uh this space where we can actually be worried about things which which don't actually cause you can't see the damage you can imagine that there's a damage and then you can mm -hmm. blow it up in uh, out of proportion and it's and then the, the risk of that, though, is, is again, that we blow up a certain thing. So out of proportion, like our fear of radiation that we ignore, you know, air pollution. Um, and yeah, exactly. another, another great infographic you have is uh, regarding sort of the, the basis of uh, evacuations of, of the Fukushima district. Can you explain that infographic for us? Yeah, I, I, I had the chance, considering that it's the Fukushima anniversary tomorrow for us while we're recording this, I was thinking back to uh, 2019 when I was uh, at this conference and I could hear uh, people from Tomioka town which is just next to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant and they tell their stories uh, of how their life has been and their that their their town was evacuated and uh, there were also children who called in like school kids uh, mm. to the conference and and they said that you know that they really suffered from the stories people tell and the fear that you have around it and they they wish that people should know the real facts about Fukushima. They and and I felt it really strong. Like these are the kids who are affected by this are real, mm -hmm. and we owe it to them to look at it. And and then the thought of somebody, the, the government, just coming and telling you that you are not allowed to have your homes, get out, and mm -hmm. we maybe never give you your homes back. And then realizing what a huge thing this is, and how can we actually justify it? Is it what kind of justification did they need? And the thing is that they actually, the, the justification was understandable, again, it was fear, and they want to make sure no one was hurt. But that's not enough, especially when you talk about governments. They ended up killing uh, between 1,500 or 1,800, something like this, people just by evacuating them way too rushly, when they could have stayed and no one would have died. So I, I felt that these kids needed, you know, people adults should take them seriously so i made the best effort that i could at thinking like what kind of justification do we have for them not to go back and i looked at the level of risk they had and i uh, can see the radiation levels in the t in the parts of the town that are still not uh, open for habitation in tomioka and, and nearby the, the most uh, contaminated areas basically and ca calculated the kind of exposure they would have and then I just compared it to how about if they move to Tokyo? I mean, they're living in the nearby cities. What if they move to Tokyo, which is uh, a little bit south of the country? And how much would their exposure go up? Uh, incidence of, of earlier 
death or morbidity uh, would go up just from living in in a city with more air pollution because Fukushima is really nice uh, fresh air lots of countryside and so on and it's several times more dangerous for them to move to Tokyo mm. nobody stops them there's no gates like you're not allowed to have your home in Tokyo <laughs> <laughs> right. it's more risk they're more likely to die and yet the government has the right, the social license sort of, because of this fear, to stop you from having your home in this one place and not on all the other places that have uh, risks that are so much higher. Mm -hmm. It's it's really shaking. Think what, what were the numbers again? Like it was in terms, I think your your, your metric was uh, risk of premature death or number of years cut off of an of a expected lifespan. Just yeah, roughly, I think it was... Uh, I remember the polluted area in in in, uh, in uh, Tokyo was like five years, um, and and it is interesting that we talk about like contamination when we talk about nuclear and we talk about pollution when we talk about you know particulate air air pollution, which is orders of magnitude more. Well, maybe I shouldn't say orders of magnitude, significantly more dangerous. Yeah, um, the, the numbers were basically uh, I had percent uh, increase in risk of premature mortality. So mm -hmm. it's how much more likely are you to die uh, prematurely? And for uh, Fukushima, the restricted areas where you're maybe allowed to uh, visit but not really live yet, uh, the risk is so low that it doesn't register. You, you don't, we can't even determine that there is right. a risk. Yeah. yeah. And if you take <clears throat> those areas which are off limit completely, which are the highest uh, contaminated, uh, they only tell you that it's above 50 millisieverts per year. Mm -hmm. So they don't tell you exactly how high. And I tried to find some some figures, but I, I couldn't make a... So I, I made an estimated guess that I'll double that to 100 mm -hmm. millisieverts per year, because that's the lowest where we start getting some idea that we might have an actual increase in mm -hmm. risk from radiation. So it's again, it's very, very unlikely that we would have any increase. But if we have an increase, it's tiny. It's it's on the uh, level of 1%. And just to clarify that data around that, like that 100 millisievert cutoff where, where we, we can actually measure an increase. That's, I think, yeah. based off the lifespan study of the atomic bomb survivors where the dose was kind of instantaneous. Exactly, instantaneously. Um, <clears throat> and so, I mean, when I, like L&T, it's still, like I've studied it a fair amount, but just to get my head around it, the premise is, you know, no, like there's no safe dose, no matter how, how low you go. Um, and it doesn't really matter over what time period you get the dose. Um, and it doesn't matter, like it's sort of a cumulative dose as well. So that we measure that total dose over 20 years, not the dose per year per whatever other unit of time. Um, I mean, these are just, you're using kind of worst of worst case scenarios. You're using that the kind of lifespan of an instantaneous dose versus something that the body can obviously respond to exactly. with lots of DNA exactly. repair mechanisms. Um, it's interesting that, you know, the things we fear, right. Um, and particularly around radiation, um, is is and, and maybe around vaccines things like kind of cancer aut like these autism like mysterious diseases whereas you know particulate air pollution causes heart attacks strokes lung disease is there an element of kind of we fear what's i don't know we we don't fear what's familiar or at least in terms of you know those cognitive biases we have around around risk I think, yeah that's you know, one of the big uh big factors there's there's if something's familiar or unfamiliar that's mm -hmm. one big thing obviously all all risks that are unfamiliar will be flagged we don't know it's better be scared mm -hmm. we know 
yeah, smoke is not too good to inhale smoke, but we know smoke. <laughs> it's right. it's not scary. It's it's a bit. It's not good for you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so sure, unfamiliar, unfamiliar. And then another really, which is almost a part of this, is natural versus artificial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we feel that it's it's from nature, it grows. It's a, it's a plant. It's it's nobody put it there. Mm-hmm. It's it's probably not that dangerous. And yeah. again, this is just you know, if we go out and there's also weeds, we're used to knowing that usually they're dangerous. That obviously we have hugely poisonous plants and animals, so it's not it's not error free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then if if somebody put it there, if it's a thing that somebody built, some kind of a weird gadget, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, let's be really suspicious about that. Yeah, and it's it's again, uh, there's natural good reasons because we used to seeing lots of stuff that are natural and familiar and know that usually nothing bad happens, but again, it's 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 like this everyday scenario of walking in the forest. Think think back to to several thousand years. We've had these cognitive biases help us. Then it was very useful for that practical you know way of life. Mm-hmm. We didn't have this this uh, huge. Uh, masses of information and these far-reaching scenarios and we're not really equipped to handle those perfectly mm-hmm. at first go <clears throat> and yeah, then, was... then there's two more things which are major mm-hmm. major factors is can you control it yourself yes for for lots of things when, when if i know how i can affect it then mm. I'm, it's, it's really reassuring. I have agency. And then yeah. I know somebody's doing it to me and I can't do anything. And that's all, you know, that's immediately really scary. Mm. So some, example, some examples of that would be like with, with vaccines, it's, you know, there's this kind of commission versus omission thing. So if your kid gets this horrible disease um, naturally and, and a horrible impact, it wasn't your fault. But if they were to get like a one in 10 million uh, adverse uh, re- uh, vaccine reaction event, they, I guess someone else put the needle in or they, yeah, yeah. you know, they brought it on themselves or with, with, you know, nuclear versus a coal plant. I mean, I'm just trying to think of the difference. I mean, nu- I think there's a really yeah. big difference in, in how we, we, we even have names for things like solar and hydro and mm. coal. We have, these are objects, which we know, we know sunlight, right. we know wind, we know mm. hydro, water, we, we know water power. Uh, we have words for these and we know how to control those. They are, they, we can touch them. We can, mm. we can tend a fire. We know how burning works. Yeah, we yeah. know how floods work. We know that, oh, if there's going to be a flood, I should avoid it. And I should, I should know how to swim and I should have life vest. I know that sun can burn me, but if I use sunscreen or whatever. So, so I have ways of controlling those factors. Mm-hmm. But then we go to <clears throat> nuclear and I don't even know the harm because I can't sense it. Right. I, I don't have a sense for radiation. So so it's already unfamiliar and I can't control it because how does how does one even control a nuclear reaction? It's like right. only some very specifically trained, highly trained engineers have any idea about how you practically, uh, yeah. what you practically do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this this kind of brings us, I think, to that question of education and I had a guest on Mirto Tripathi talking about um, nuclear energy in France, and it was, you know, mostly focused on sort of the the social implications of nuclear in terms of, um, anyway, listen to that one. It's called Nuclear Energy in France and Social Solidarity. But um, she she talked about, you know, there was an era, I think, up until the late 90s where, you know, every high school class would tour a nuclear plant. 
And so there was, at least you got some familiarity, right? You'd walk around. Ah, did you talk to Myrto? Myrto, yeah. I probably mispronounced her name. Yeah. So, you know, just getting that exposure, right? And especially in France, where 75% of the electricity is produced by nuclear, that makes a ton of sense. And then it's been, though, I guess 30 years now since they've done those tours or since that was a part of the kind of French curriculum. And now you have a majority of people under 30 who think that the stuff coming out of a cooling tower is, is a is a co2 or is going to affect the climate right like it's yeah it's, it's really it's really a travesty i was also really concerned you talked about lnt and the the yeah. irrationalities of that and when i was uh, at the risk workshop workshop uh, for nuclear energy agency i had i heard the french head of radiation protection there make um a presentation on lnt trying to say that lnt is valid and we mm. should use it and see we can find this study where you do have this correlation and you can find these effects at very low doses. And uh, it was it was the first lecture that I was I really regret the fact that I didn't go like wait 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 because <laughs> I had I had read the the review uh, restatement on our best knowledge of radi on radiation effects, which is from Royal Society from UK. And this is a this is a meta analysis, right? It's not just one study. It's exactly all it's, of them. It's like this taking these experts or together in a room, not even a, a, one group doing this, but like this huge uh, group of experts discussing all this evidence is a really great article and it has some really good graphs. And, and we'll put great, it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. And appendixes, appendices are also really worth reading. Actually readable appendices. Amazing. And uh, um and they took all the studies you can, uh, all the good quality studies you have of different populations with different radiation doses and what you can see. And the landscape is just this dotted little mess everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, sure, whatever point you want to make, you can choose your study. Right. You can say, look, this study says so. Yeah, this is exactly why the core principle of science is that you can't just cherry pick. It's, you it's can't ignore yeah. the rest. It's interesting in, in medicine, like the, the treatments that we argue about are the ones where, yeah, you have that exact thing where, okay, this study showed it was a positive benefit. This study showed there was more harm. And then it gets very partisan. And that's what we get really attached to in terms of, no, I'm a believer in this treatment or I reject it. And we fight about it incessantly, but precisely that, like in terms of that line you're describing, that linear no threshold line, once you get to those very low doses, I mean, the studies that find an effect, it's a tiny effect, right? Like it's, one extra cancer yeah. per thousands. Yeah. And this is per... why this whole argument is really hurtful to the public perception. Because yeah. while the experts argue about, is there an effect? Isn't there an effect? You should just put them all in a box and say, look, this uncertainty here, is an infinitesimal risk yeah. we're, we're arguing about. Does it have a tiny, tiny, tiny risk? Yeah. Or doesn't it have a tiny, tiny risk, but maybe only tiny, tiny risk? And yeah. it's like the public should have some good idea about what you're arguing about, not mm. just this general anxiety about that there is uncertainty. Yeah, yeah it's... it's and and it's yeah, really when, when, you see, when you see scatter around a line like that, some above, some below, you have a sense when you put all the literature together that there's there's no effect. That's that's the sense you get. Of course, science will be very reluctant to ever make a, a definitive statement about that. <clears throat> but and I mean, this leads to some really interesting things. Again, it's, it's good. I think that we're bringing up Fukushima because we have the anniversary tomorrow. But, you know, the Japanese were under a tremendous amount of pressure, um, you know, to demonstrate to gain public trust. And this was partially because of uh, I believe his name is Jatsko, the, the former NRC chairman who 
um, created a ton of doubt. The story is in our last episode that that's uh, on, on the decouple show. But um, and, and one of the things they did was they lowered the radiation limits from what they were before, right, right after the accident. And so this led to things like bulldozing all the topsoil off of this incredible agricultural area. I mean, many, many oh, fields. I, I heard when I and- hear those stories. <laughs> when you look at agriculture and what is what is environmental, what is responsible farming, and you the, the focus is so much on soil, preserving soil, preserving yeah. soil, and then they're then they're like cheese slicing it away. I mean, cheese slicer yeah. is a very important <clears throat> Finnish utensil, which I yeah, use every bit, yeah, yeah. and they take it away. It's it's uh, how are people not screaming at this this crime <laughs> against yeah. the fields? It's horrible. And then they put it in bags and then the bags leak and then they freak out about the bags leaking a level of radiation that was lower than what the standards were before the accident would yeah, have been considered yeah. safe before the accident so yeah my my fantasy <clears throat> is that you and i don't think it should be a fantasy i think it's it's a it's a goal we should have some kind of a, a overarching uh risk principle mm. uh, government's uh, health uh, institution should have uh, a, a huge work i understand and it would not happen overnight but this general uh, industries and general public health measures should look at levels of risk yeah whatever the kind of harm is from whichever uh, area you, you have some general magnitudes of levels of risk and yeah. then your measures have to you set your uh, exposures to what your uh, what you think is tolerable you can, mm-hmm. maybe you end up raising some exposures and lowering some to bring them to the same kind of play level field. of risk yeah 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 and then you have this all over because then you don't get these completely irrational things where you well, protect the, the fossil, people the, from something and not from something else the fossil fuel industry would be put out of business in a flash oh, for sure right? like this if I they mean, to pay the just... externalities or, or do anything yes. remotely close to the safety culture of nuclear, they would be done. And, and I mean, I think that's when we, when we start thinking about the geopolitics or the underlying rationales for why nuclear has kind of paid this price and other industries haven't. I mean, that's that's got to factor in because this this is what is crippling and holding nuclear back to an enormous degree. And it's very hard as like as advocates who care about our children to, it's, it's a hard point to push that, hey, we need to relax a guideline or, you know, increase the levels that should be the tolerable levels. Like that's very counterintuitive. Of course, yeah. we sound like, oh, they must be getting paid by someone, right? But yeah, it's, it's yeah. Um, but it, I think that it's, it's, it's easy. You, you can try to say that way. You said, oh, let's be less safe about nuclear. No, let's be responsible mm. about risk levels in general. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is completely irresponsible to create these fear images. And yeah ask people to be protected in one area but not in another (laughs) there's no rational for that it's interesting the way that the fossil industry for instance like when the the clean air act came in under richard nixon of all people the environmental hero richard when the republican party was (laughs) strangely enough passing the most uh, impressive environmental uh, legislation of the 20th century perhaps um but you know like having to put scrubbers on on coal stacks to remove heavy metals or controlling acid rain and things like that i mean they put up such a stink you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, unfortunately, I do want to sort of keep this around an hour. Um, we're a little over that, but I don't care. Oh. We're going to, we're going to go a little further. Uh, I want to do a second episode with you um, on your experience and your trips to Chernobyl, but as a teaser, cause it's a bit of a similar topic. Let's talk a little bit about your visit to the Swiss uh, interim nuclear, nuclear uh, spent nuclear fuel or nuclear waste storage site. And a little bit just about the theatrics 
Um, cause I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. and, and whether that those theatrics caused you to sort of doubt yourself or to be nervous or at what point you stop being nervous. For sure. And, yeah. For sure. Every time I visited a nuclear plant or a waste repository, uh, I think by now I've, I've done this dance four times. Every time when you're doing it, um, the people who help you do it and explain things to you, they all very, you know, serious and matter of fact, and this is how you should do it. And you, I immediately mirror them and I'm like, yeah, of course, safety is very important. And of course, I will be careful and I'll consider and, and I won't touch things and I, and I will have protective gear. And, and I think one great thing that they, they, they told us some of the things surrounding safety pr protocols were that they said that they had to nowadays, everybody has to also have a hard hat. Right. And it's like, hmm, okay. And so, yeah, because there's this one portion of the, the um, culvert where we go, where the, there's one part of the ceiling that's a bit lower. So there's a corner. And yeah. once someone, a guest hit their head there. So now everybody must have hard hats. <laughs> and if you just think about the level of protection you hear, think about kids going on a playground. Right. Uh, yeah, they, they big gravity hazards on the program. how much should we protect them? But yeah. since you have this 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 holding these people like little precious eggs so that they will they will not be harmed in any way, and then trying to ask them questions about well, how much is to harm them? Right. Uh, what what level of risk is there? I'm putting on these hair nets and these these uh, white co lab coats and and. Um, and like, why, why a hairnet is the, the fuel is in these closed casks. Is there like, is there powder that's somehow going to mysteriously escape and settle in your hair? Or you had something about like putting on these boots and having to step on a separate mat. Like what, tell me this more was, about Yeah, that. exactly. First we put on all this gear and then we walk around the plant and then we go to the heart of the place where the actual high level cask waste casks are the, the used nuclear fuel. I mean, it's, it's not waste really. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't go to waste. Uh, and then to, to enter that place, you have all these yellow signs of danger, danger, and you have this separate little uh, room where you have a bench and you have a line with tape on the floor and you are to, to sit on that bench and have your legs on one side. And then you are to lift up and take your shoe and to take a protective little booty. And then you're not allowed to put your foot on the same line. You have to remember to put it over that line then. And you sit around the bench and then you do the same dance with the next foot. And then I, by mistake, I put that on the wrong side of the line. And they were like, no, 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 you, have, you must. All right, all right. Now, now I have them both. It's it's completely nuts. I mean, the thing is that there are because of our fears, there are so stringent measurements all the time that if I were to bring some contamination in, or <coughs> uh, uh, if they were not to detect that I came with an old watch which has a higher reading, then right. then my watch would not be allowed to leave the place again. And oh, wow. you know, okay. stuff like this. Yeah, yeah, you have to be careful so that because what so that, what leaves has to be a lower half the dose of natural background radiation. I think you said point one microsievert per. Yeah. Hour? Okay. Completely normal <laughs> around the house is zero point two. You it's zero point one a lot as as well, but zero point two mm -hmm. is completely. I mean, huge. Your your granite countertop was point four. Yeah, it's point three, point four, depending on which spot I find. So if that were if that had been sort of if I had taken it with me, 
it would have stayed forever. It would have, <laughs> it would have been, you know, my privileged country would have been under, you know, constant observation and it would have gotten buried under the bedrock to be safely kept away from the public. It, it, you go to these absurd lengths to protect ourselves. And who, like, whose fault is that? Is that the nuclear industry constantly trying to accommodate? And like, I, I feel like in my own sort of activism, I've spent, you know, I had a learning period where I, I spent a lot of time like arguing with fundamentalist greens that I would never convince. And it was good for me because it forced me to really learn the literature and, and hone my arguments and understand all the objections and like learn to empathize and understand some of their motives. Um, but I'm just trying to understand, like, is it that the nuclear industry is trying to please those people who will never be pleased by engineering ever more safety? <clears throat> I mean, obviously, For there's sure. a regulatory body that's 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 imposing this to some degree as well. But I mean, like, in terms of if we were to look at risk, you should be able to basically, I mean, you should be able to walk straight into that hall, spend a few hours there. I know in, in uh, the Netherlands, their um, interim storage site, it's a big... Uh, um beautifully painted uh warehouse and they hang art um in the warehouse i don't think it's open to the public to tour because of course the iaea monitors it and they're afraid some terrorist is gonna like crack the lid off of a spent fuel thing and like it's just insane oh yeah i got to wave to iaea cameras because they monitor that as well i was like hey there <laughs> hi. hi guys <laughs> And, and that you have to you're waving to the most anti-nuclear country right to austria i mean i guess it's hard to decide ah, which is the most austria? iaea yeah, is I'm... based there i don't know where the cameras are yeah yeah through, but... it might be <laughs> Fascinating. no uh, no it, it's it's part, partly this for sure that uh, the public is scared what should we do we'll mm -hmm. make it even safer and then you don't you're not a risk psychologist and you don't realize that by underlining that there's really no 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 rats in this restaurant not a rat we haven't seen any rats today in <laughs> fact no rats whole week and we and have rat traps everywhere immediately have, yeah. backing away like all right <laughs> yeah. so underlining the safety has reminds us of the risk yeah so uh, hyping it too much is actually counterproductive but then i would say also that people are uh, people in the nuclear industry have these same fears. They have these same yeah. biases. They're also scared. And they've also heard from people, they also, you know, unless it's actually their job to to uh, uh, read through the research and really try to understand it and so on, they might not even have the time to really be set into the the finesse of the arguments. They just know that, oh, wow, yeah, and there was a leak and, oh, something could happen. And they have these same fears as, as yeah. anyone. I mean if you're participating in the theatrics, of course you would, right? Like when you go to work at a coal mine and you, I think a lot of them don't even wear masks or anything, right? And you just put a hard hat on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're not, nothing, you're not, it's just, yeah. You're not <laughs> thinking about, oh my God, all this stuff, like black lung and all the stuff deposit, like unless you watch Zoolander or something, <laughs> yeah. you're not, you're not thinking about all of those, those harms because you're not reminded to on a, on a yeah. moment to moment basis. And I mean, the safety culture, I've, I've had some people from nuclear unions on and, and, you know, it is remarkable, like 22 million hours, like accident free hours at, you know, one of our Canadian nuclear plants, like that's, that's great. And we should keep our workers safe, but there's stuff that we do that actually, because the safety culture is dialed up so much, we actually put people at a bit of risk because they're so obsessed right. with not tripping on their shoelaces or whatever that they hit their head on the beam or something. Yeah. Uh, but also like when you set these, when like you keep going as low as reasonably achievable and you set the standards lower and lower and lower, there's no going back mm. from that. Yeah. And I'd argue right? that there's, that's not reasonable, that they actually <laughs> missed the big part of their limit. Yeah. as reasonably achievable well maybe there's a there's a like is it doable yeah we, it is doable we can do even more but is it reasonable to do so yeah no 
is there yeah. let's let's go down to uh, a set level of risk let's mm -hmm. avoid a set magnitude of risks yeah. let's just go to that <laughs> right it's it's completely it's actually very completely unfair to think that somebody else has the the right to harm the whole populace just like that yeah. no uh, regulations on on how many deaths are they allowed to uh, yeah. allowed to cause yeah and no, then somebody I... else uh you know don't cause any and are, are regulated almost to death it's yeah yeah no it's it's fascinating i mean i think you know one one of my latest revelations that's kind of got me up in a tiffy because you know when you bring up nuclear energy objection number one or two is uh <clears throat> but what about the waste right and and there's no solution and i was talking to a um someone about our, our deep geologic repository that we're sort of researching and I understand Finland's actually building yeah. one right now but the rock I mean there's all these multiple layers of 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 containment um you know the the fuels inside of these zirconium alloy rods inside of a steel cask that's lined with concrete inside of a copper tube buried in bentonite clay and the the mechanism for that to get to the biosphere and harm people is water needs to kind of infiltrate through this rock layer where water moves one meter in three million years percolating through right that needs to get through all these different barriers like solubilize um, often vitrified fuel or, or ceramic fuel you know um, uh, dissolve that and then those radionuclides need to move into the surrounding rock where they immediately bind the minerals yeah they and like to bind to the rock they don't <laughs> they stay in the water rocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and and that that's what you're you you mentioned a friend on your blog Erika I'm, and I'm Erika. Sorry, yeah my Erika. Finnish my Finnish names are I've, <laughs> I've got to do some work on that but you just very briefly tell us that anecdote and then we'll close off because uh there's yeah there's, yeah, and we're going to have you back for a Chernobyl show and hopefully an agriculture theme show as well. But yeah, just oh, let's, cool. let's finish off with, the, with that story from Erika. When I was still, when my biggest worry was still the, the nuclear waste, my friend told me that she was used to be against uh, nuclear, but then she decided that, well, she wants to be a chemist, so she can study radiochemistry and have even better arguments. Mm -hmm. She likes to have informed arguments. And during her studies, it was it was a big revelation. And she even got to do an experiment on, because of the uh, nuclear uh, waste repository we were building, they got to actually experiment with Olkiluot uh, on the scenario of what would happen if you had the rocks of Olkiluot and you'd have all this leakage mm -hmm. and you release these uh, radioactive materials into that bedrock. And she left the solutions of, of the leaks uh, incubating with this rock water solution uh, over the weekend and then she comes back and she measures again the liquid phase the, so the, she takes the liquid away from the rock she takes exactly she takes off. just yeah. the liquid uh, instead of the rock and checks how much I have left of my uh, I, I inserted the the nuclear radiation ra ra radioactive elements in the liquid form and how much do I have left mm. and it's all disappeared because it's left in the solid uh, rock bits it right. it finds these places and it, it immediately binds to them so basically you if you try to release a nuclear leak you have this amounts uh, huge bedrocks of rock <laughs> against right. you because they keep absorbing the stuff yeah they already have that stuff naturally and they absorb more <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's so she said that it was it was just a huge realization that wow this thing that we fear i just I just caused it. I, I sort of unleashed right. it in this beaker, mm -hmm. and it was such an anticlimax because nothing, uh, nothing happened. It, it, it 
it doesn't stay there. And that that fits with the uh, the Oklo um, natural reactor in Gabon in Africa, right? Where they they there's this natural fission reaction back when the U two thirty five hadn't decayed from three percent down to 0.7 now, and there was a natural natural reaction, and and the the products from that you can measure them. They've moved you know a few meters. Yeah, a few meters in during the time <laughs> when life evolved. Yeah, those waste products have traveled a few meters. Yeah, it's just mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. It's paining me to have to wrap up. Um, but I think for the sake of our listeners, the best approach will be to have you back for a few more sort of themed shows, if you're willing. It's been so much I'm fun. I'm happy to come back. It was been, yeah. It's been really nice to talk to you. And I, yeah. I really love talking to fellow ecomonists across the yeah. globe. We have a lot more cooperation among the European ecomonists nowadays. And it's, it's one of those things among the environmental movements that really gives me yeah. hope. It's, it's lovely. So there's a, there's a movement should... building. Yeah. Yes. And I'm, I have to say, I'm a, I'm a European ecomodernist. I'm not a North American one because yeah we I, talked about you we we're like yeah Chris a dick couple he's really he, he sees things I'm a, I'm a eye to know, eye <laughs> yeah kind of a social democrat lefty eco-modernist that you know anyway it's it's that's another yeah and and not to even and bring polarization to it because actually in Europe we have a surprising variety of of yeah. uh, all all the parties we we don't have as polarized I just mean, politics. I think that there's there's political spectrums and then there's, you know, the left and the right used to agree that there was a role for the state in, you know, right. funding technologies. And I think that's the key issue with North American eco-modernism is that it confines itself too much to the, um, you know, the, the political economy of, of where we're situated. And because, you know, eco-modernism kind of originated, you know, maybe in California or around those thinkers, um, it has that flavor. And yeah, so right. It, that's the thing like you know government support for decoupling technologies should not be a partisan issue or a left-right issue and no we're actually it's, we're actually doing an episode in a, in a couple of days on precisely that topic right like the ways in which the new left has sort of betrayed a lot of its roots right. um, and is kind of devolving into a bit more of like a libertarian individualistic regressive you know through their policies not necessarily their language and the right has kind of moved away from you know a politics that saw a role for the state into, you know, and, and valuing all different kinds of capital, cultural, social, environmental capital to just being hyper-financialized and, and a free market fundamentalist. So that's a little hint of what's coming up soon on Decouple. Right. But yeah. Anyway, Ida, I'm going to have to cut it off. It's so hard. It's been, honestly, it's been so much fun. Um, it's so, been great chatting with you, Chris. Absolutely. I'll come back. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.